MFA writers. Since we last spoke, summer has officially begun. I hope you're all getting some well-deserved R&R, having some fun, staying cool, and of course, catching up on your favorite podcasts. We're always so grateful to have you here. I want to give a shout out to one listener in particular, Sia Vash, who recently donated $25 to the podcast via buymeacoffee.com. Thank you so much for your support. Today we've got an episode covering the University of Washington, which was requested by both Sarah Blood and Rory Newman. I hope you all enjoy it. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Simon Graham. Simon is an Australian writer, educator, and climate change worker living in Seattle. They are an MFA candidate in prose writing at the University of Washington, where they won the Eugene Van Buren Prize in Fiction and teach a class on activist writing. Simon is also a 2023 Climate Corps Fellow with the Environmental Defense Fund, and prior to moving to the U.S., they worked on climate policy in Australia and lectured on climate change at Monash University. They're currently working on a queer crime novel set in the shadowy world of Australian climate politics. Samples of their writing can be found at simongram.me. Today, Simon is going to read an excerpt from a piece titled Lore. Okay, so this is the opening section from a short story called Lore. That's L-O-R-E. Lore. This is how the unraveling begins. I stumble on two teenagers graffitiing the wall of a resort complex in my hometown. When they see me, the kids scramble out of the bushes like brush turkeys, so startled by my presence at four in the morning that they leave behind their paint cans, one of which, in my semi-sonambulant state, I pick up and use to recreate my sister's tag on the wall, a tag I know by heart because it is still all around Midnight Beach, despite Lauren having been dead for years. The next afternoon, I wake up in my childhood bed wondering why I sullied both the resort wall and my sister's posthumous artistic reputation with an ersatz law tag. But that night, I go walking again and am led, led by whatever made me write her tag last night back to Zion Resort. I gaze at the four letters dripping and bleeding all over one another in a mass of black and think, surely I can do better than that. Then I wonder, did Lauren's obsession with graffiti start with the same incorrigible itch, the same desire for future mastery? That's a question I can't answer. Here are some others I can't. 
Why did Lauren slum it in midnight after high school when she had the grades to go anywhere in Australia and do anything? Why was she using opiates and how did none of us know? And why was her graffiti tag law? The last one I can at least hazard a guess at. It is a homonym of my father's nickname for her. But Lauren was too smart, too oblique to hoist her artistic identity on something that straightforward. We didn't know Lauren was Laura until it was revealed by one of her friends at the funeral. After that, I pieced together the way she had marked our town. She targeted the billboards and for sale signs of new resorts, the garage doors of Airbnbs, the road signs pointing to housing developments being built inland. None of this surprised me. I still remember the day she taught me the word gentrification. I was 12, she was 14. Then there was the time she killed the mood at one of our parents' dinner parties by saying the new developments were being built on floodplains and would be uninsurable in under a decade. She was right, but no one wanted to hear it, not even the locals who were being pushed inland by city folk. Maybe law was her way of telling developers they weren't paying attention to the town's law, or maybe there was a karmic law at play, you get greedy and I'll fuck up your facades. All of this swells in my head as I follow the garden path to the other side of Zion. I'm trying to justify to myself that despite my lack of painting skills, despite being a total toy, Lauren would be happy I'm going to deface this gratuitous eyesore again. Zion is only one of many monstrosities in Midnight, but it is among the worst. A panopticon of poorly constructed apartments encircling a pool perennially lit up and heated despite an occupancy rate of near nil. It pains me to think of how grief-stricken Lauren would be to see Midnight now. When she died, the economic tide was flowing. The beach was full of tourists and transient work from homers who brought with them yoga studios, acai cafes, the rest of that milieu. Lauren hated it all, but at least there was energy around that had the potential to be transformed. After she died, the ebbing began. The Reserve Bank raised interest rates. Flash flooding took out the outer boundary of town. There was a fire sale on real estate. Properties were bought by foreign investors who had no intention of living in Midnight, only holding onto land until the tide came back in. Midnight is near deserted now. The landscape is littered with half-finished houses and overgrown lawns. When Lauren used to paint, there must have been the constant threat of being caught, but there isn't for me. As I find a place on the Zion wall, it feels like there isn't a person alive for miles. The silence is all-encompassing until I pierce it with the hiss of aerosol. I embody my sister's hand style, my arms starting high and dropping low into the L before wrapping around into the O, at which point I wonder if I have it all wrong about law. Maybe it had little to do with linguistic meaning, but it was instead something physical, something in the topography of the letters, something backbrained and choreographic far beyond my comprehension. Either way, as I dance the dance of a ghost, I feel close to her in a way I haven't for years. Simon, thanks for sharing that with us and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jared. This is great. I like to ask guests sometimes about their upbringing, where they're from and and what their childhoods were like, partially because I'm curious, but also because that part of our lives as writers, I think, tends to inform our later work in interesting ways. And I think that's been the case for you. So let's talk about Australia a bit. What was it like growing up there? Growing up in Australia was was, um, 
you know, a lot of the stereotypes are true and a lot of them aren't. I, I moved around a lot as a kid, a, a lot around on the different parts of the East Coast. Um, I think it's interesting in terms of how it's influenced my writing. Um, there's a common phenomenon in Australia called cultural cringe, which is this sort of like in, internalized inferiority complex about Australia and also growing up with, you know, British and American media all the time as well. Um, and so I think for a lot of years, especially early writing, I was, I was kind of trying to abandon my Australianness, and I'm only now sort of starting to find it again. What did that abandonment look like in practice? I think a lot of um, mimicking American writers that I really liked or European writers, uh, not reading a huge amount of Australian writing as well. Um, and so writing stories that weren't particularly place-based uh, and then over time, it's become a much more central part of my writing, I feel. Yeah, I feel like that's a common phenomenon, not just for writers, but for anyone who just like wants to get away from the place they grew up, right? I mean, I've I've said this before on the podcast, so listeners have heard this before, but I come from a small town and like couldn't wait to get out of there and wasn't interested in anything that was related to small town Missouri. But then when I started writing... It was like, that's what showed up. That's what really resonated on the page was when I was writing stories about that place where I was from. Totally. Uh, some of the other people in the program here with me, and we, we talk about it quite a bit. Also, the it's much easier to write about a place once you've left it or expatriated from it. Yeah. So um, I'm finding it, you know, it's also homesickness, you know, comes into <laughs> it as well, which is, right. which is a good uh, inspiration. You told me the place you, one of the places you grew up in Australia was vulnerable to flooding, which gave you an up close look at climate change. You've done a lot of work in relation to the climate, and it's a theme that shows up a lot in your work. So, how do you think your upbringing in that area influenced that focus in your life and in your writing? So, I grew up at the beach a lot uh, and in forests. And then um, my father was also a ski coach, which is a, a relatively rare, rare thing in Australia. So I spent quite a bit of time in mountains. Um, and so, yeah, w w the, the beach area that I grew up uh, was subject to floods a lot of the years. Um, I spent a lot of time in mountains where you could see glaciers receding over time and things like that. So the things that I really hold dear to me, to me the landscapes, seeing them change or seeing them be affected, I think is what got me into climate change work. And then spending years doing that work and having friends who also work in that space and talking about it all the time. Um, even if I'm writing stories that start off as having nothing to do with climate change, they end up, it ends up coming up because, you know, if I'm writing stories about people who are like me or have had similar upbringings to me at some point, these things factored into, you know, lived day-to-day -day experience. So it's kind of there whether I, whether I try to or not. I always find it interesting. Often when I try to decide on a theme beforehand, the stories don't seem to work in the same way. But then if I, if I don't have a theme in mind, it's like there are these recurring things that show up time and time again. And it's interesting. You can kind of run away from that as a writer and try to distance yourself. Like, no, I've already written about these things. Or you can embrace it, I guess, and and let those things find their way into your work and keep exploring them as long as you need to, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the themes that exist sort of 
on the edges of the frame of, of your writing are often the, some of the most interesting. Um, and that's something I found uh, in the program as well as workshop can often reveal what those things are for right. you. So I get a lot of feedback that my work is doing strange things with time, for example, and I had no awareness of that whatsoever <laughs> before I was in an MFA program and the way in which you know certain emotions like grief play out over time and then climate change and landscapes and things like that, that because they're my lived experience feel just second nature and I'm not consciously aware I'm doing it. But then those are the things that people really pick up in work. I think workshop's great for that. So once you were in workshops and people started picking up on these things, what was your reaction to that as a writer? Is that something that you then leaned into? Is that something you embraced and, and that now you more intentionally explore in your work? Case by case basis, I would say, but I think I think largely yes. I find myself um, aware of those aspects, but at the same time, the fact that those aspects are there without me consciously doing anything about it means maybe I don't need to focus on right. them too much because they're there regardless. And it's it's maybe some of the aspects where I think I spent hours laboring over this factor being in it and then you get workshop and no one even comments on it you're sort of like <laughs> oh okay maybe maybe there's less there or I've, I've got to think about that part more well as i mentioned in your bio you're currently working on a queer crime novel set in the shadowy world of australian climate politics which sounds very interesting to me we've heard about your connection to australian climate issues but tell us about your decision to write a queer crime novel I mean, in terms of the idea itself came up sort of organically, you know, I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a, a queer crime novel, but those, you know, queerness is core to my identity and my writing. And then crime fiction, I've always had an affinity to. It was the sorts of writing that I grew up with in my house as a kid and, and things like that. But what I find interesting about it is the tension maybe that comes when you're thinking about something like a queer crime novel you know, historically queer people have been writing crime fiction and crime nonfiction for, for years, thinking about people like Truman Capote or Patricia Highsmith, these sorts of people. But with that being said, I think as a genre, crime fiction is often associated with certain traditional things, uh, the police, the restoration of order, thinking about thrillers often having military aspects to it, uh, the the gender roles of things like hard-boiled detective novels. And so I'm, I, I find it really interesting of thinking about what happens when you bring queerness into those sorts of conventional narratives and what ways it ruptures it, what opportunities it brings up, what ways it reflects certain aspects of, of what's happening in the genre originally. And so I'm finding that really interesting to, to write into. And the crime genre in general, I think, is pretty interesting because like in the States, I find people try to kind of shy away from genre writing and they want to be more, quote unquote, literary. But crime novels are popular and uh, like strongly part of the literary scene in other countries around the world. I think like uh, there are some really great Spanish language writers, for instance, in Spain and in South America who write really great crime novels that are saying really important things about the culture and about the history of those countries. So it's an interesting genre to explore with those deeper themes, I think. Absolutely. Uh, I think that exactly what you said, the, the, there's these really rich literatures, particularly in countries where there has been 
you know, a more active sort of political, particularly a left-wing political scene. So Spanish language countries, like you mentioned, um, I've been reading a lot of French crime novels from the 60s and 70s when there was, you know, big communist movements and things like that. Um, Italy in terms of how the mafia was corrupt and linked to the government and, and sort of crime novels were the best way to engage with these sorts of socio-political criminal sort of things that, that are happening in countries. Um, we definitely have less of it, I think, in the English-speaking world historically. But I also think that that's starting to change. And particularly if with climate change, I'm interested in environmental crime and the, and corruption in, in that space. And, you know, you're starting to see books like um, Eleanor Catton's new book, Burnham Wood, is, is an eco-thriller. Um, you're starting to see, particularly in that space, I think more sort of crime fiction because it is in a lot of ways, the. I personally, I think one of the best vehicles to explore some of the things that are happening. Well, let's talk a little bit about your process as a writer. Coming from this activist background, you told me that you often spend time thinking about what you're trying to do with your writing and who you are writing to, for, and with. What do you mean by this and, and how do you incorporate that into your process? Yeah, so that that idea of, of who you're writing to, who you're writing for and who you're writing with um, is something that one of the professors here, Ray, Ray Paris, uh, talked to us about and made us, made us really think about and I think it's really important. Writing to, I suppose, is who who you're trying to reach i suppose or who who you want to hear what you're you're putting out there um who you're writing for is is maybe not necessarily that you could be writing to people in certain power structures to kind of maybe try and convince their ideas but who you're writing for are maybe the people being affected by those power structures and then who you're writing with is sort of maybe who are the artists or people in your ecosystem that are that are in the same sort of conversational movement and things like that. And I think that that, that way of framing what you're doing in an activist space and then in a literary space, uh, it's applicable to both, um, though I think different in the sense of um, while I find myself writing a lot about activist spaces and things like that, I don't necessarily think that I'm under no illusions maybe that my writing has a sort of political end the way that, um, you know, being engaged with movements and stuff is. I think that they're, they're different things. And what about your process? How do you incorporate that into your process? Is that something that you take time to think about before you ever start writing? Um, or is that something that happens more organically while you're drafting a piece? I think it happens organically, maybe in the drafting process. So maybe after a first draft or a second draft is done, you know, taking it into workshop, we'll have conversations about that sort of thing in workshop. It's, you know, who's, who is your audience here and, and who are you trying to reach with this sort of piece? And then thinking about craft decisions based on that. So as an example, we're talking about these crime novels and things like that. Something that is really powerful about them is their degree of accessibility. The fact that they have a a kind of wider readership, Um, for example, my, my dad loves crime thrillers. And, and so there's a degree of which, you know, it's thinking, okay, what's a book that I could write that, that can reach a, a wider range of audiences and not in a sort of like, how can I sell books way, but in a way of like, if you have a message that's not accessible to the sorts of people who, who it might help or resonate with, then, then there's like questions, craft questions to have there. One thing I worry about though, when I'm, when I start thinking about who I'm 
writing to or what my theme or agenda might be in a piece, I worry that I might become like um, overly didactic or preachy. How do you avoid doing that? I really, I mean, I still struggle with this, I think, but I think I really struggled with it. I I think about some of my early stories when I was starting to try to ride into climate change, particularly, it was very didactic sort of writing. What I try to think about now is if I imagine a reader who has basically exactly the same politics as me, knows the same or more about the subject than I do, what does my story have for them? And, you know, I think a story that's trying to smuggle in a political message or that's its main like apparatus, that kind of story falls apart very quickly when you start to think about that sort of reader. And then I also think about most good stories for me involve people interpersonally engaging with each other in all the complexities of that. And if you're rendering, you know, what it's really like to be human, I don't think who your characters are, whether it's like a fossil fuel executive or, or, or whoever else or an environmental activist, no one's going to come across as flat angels or devils or villains or things. We're all really flawed and doing complicated things all the time and have ulterior motives and all that sort of stuff. And I think if, if that starts showing through, I think it, the, the, the idea of it being preachy breaks down pretty quickly as well. Well, it won't surprise readers to hear that creating a sense of place is important to your writing, but that can be easier said than done. So what do you do to try to instill place in your writing? What I do is I sit in scenes, which is a very slow process, and just sit with a scene that's happening and really try and imagine all the sensory elements of it. And I think place comes through with that. I try to think about does the dialogue active accurately reflect the sorts of people in the place? I mean, I think those are the two areas that I think about place the most. But at the same time, I unique experience of writing Australian place-based uh, writing in an American program is it is maybe easier for me to slip into cliche or stereotype and an American readership who haven't been to Australia not notice that. And so I, you know, I have to think about my stories. I was like, okay, would this really ring true to people who are also in this place and can really understand it? Or am I projecting a certain uh, flat view of a place to, to other audiences? So I also feel a lot of imposter syndrome about that, even though I'm writing about my hometowns and stuff like that. (laughs) Well, I guess a, a good reason to have uh, readers from Australia, not just the US, from all over, right? And from different walks of life. And I think what you said about sensory details is important. It's something that I think as writers, we hear a lot, like think about all five senses when you're writing. But for some reason, I often forget that. But leaning into those senses and really, like you said, taking time with a scene and thinking about, okay, what would this sound like? What would this smell like? All of those things can really bring us a, a scene and a place to life in a story, right? Definitely. Uh, and I also struggle with it and sort of do it uh, against my free will often. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just want to get to the new plot point or the, the thought, you know, these, these kind of like, I find myself tending towards, you know, writing people's inner monologues and things like that. And then I have to go, okay, where are they actually in space and time? Well, maybe this is something to focus on in revision. So let's talk about that a little bit. We've talked about writing at the more macro theme-based level. 
But what about the sentence level? What does your revision process look like? My revision process has changed a lot in the program, and that's largely come about through needing to turn in work really regularly and consistently. Uh, I would say before the program, I would labor over a story for much longer than I do now. Uh, In the past, I would sort of edit as I go, which I think is a, in general, not the best approach where now I'm trying to learn very much the, you know, write a rough first draft and then sort of get more micro as I go along. I really think about sound a huge amount when I'm writing on a sentence level. So I read out loud constantly what I'm writing. Uh, And if I, you know, I think if you change one word in a sentence, uh, it can have carryover effects in terms of the sounds of the sentences that follow. And so I think it's a very slow process of, for me of um, if I change or tinker one thing, then it has all these like carryover effects for the rest of the paragraph and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm learning to not see the, you know, not miss the forest for the trees the way I used to as much and, and kind of letting writing breathe a little bit. And workshops being good for that in the sense that, you know, realize quickly, for example, people don't, care if you used an m dash or a colon in a particular or a semicolon in a particular place and that you know there's 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 other things that people are much more interested in uh so that's been liberating in a lot of ways like you mentioned in revision it's really about like getting down to the micro level and thinking about um the technical aspects of the sentences do you find that there are any pitfalls to that like is it possible to take that process too far and lose something in a story? I don't know if I would say lose something uh, in a story, but it's it's kind of recognizing maybe what your story's trying to do. I think about a writer like um, Gary L. Lutz uh, is an example, or, or Diane Williams is some writers who you know they're obsessed with sentences and their writing is really about writing these exquisite interesting sounding sentences and that is the pleasure and the point of the story more so than say what the content is or the plot or the characterization and that's fine but that doesn't resonate with certain people or or vice versa and so just thinking about you know what what are you focusing on in that story and and what's what's most important um and it might be harder to say chop out three pages uh, if you've spent, you know, three months uh, making sure the sentences are perfect in in those pages. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe another reason uh, why editing while you're writing can be dangerous, right? Because if you spend a bunch of time editing those early pages and then you figure out later, oh, actually, those first few pages just need to be cut. It can be really hard to let those go. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you do you have that experience? Because I find I, I've you know been burnt a few times of that, and then I've kind of had to learn learn from from that. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely had that experience. But no matter how many times I tell myself, "Don't edit as you go, just keep writing, just get the draft out," I still find myself lapsing into it. You know, and sometimes, hey, sometimes what one story needs is not what another story needs. Sometimes editing along the way works really well for me, and. You know, I've learned to kind of be open from story to story and not be too dogmatic about my process. Yeah, absolutely. And and still having fun with it. Uh, Nikki Krauss, one of the professors here, who's my thesis advisor, uh, I was talking about uh, the writing I'm trying to do over the summer. And 
we were talking about exactly this issue and and they sort of said allow yourself as a treat to 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 deeply edit like one paragraph a day or something <laughs> and then and then you've just got to get to it and so yeah. you know uh, you know, we we can only resist our our temptations so much well i'm curious to hear more about how your time in the mfa has changed your writing and process but first let's talk about how you got to the mfa you first started thinking about it in undergrad, but it was something like five to seven years later before you actually applied. What caused this hesitation? I think a lot of things uh, caused the hesitation. For one, there's some cultural aspects. Um, in Australia, it's less common to start graduate school, for example, straight after undergrad. A lot of friends and, and things have started PhDs in their 30s and that sort of thing is much more common. Um, I only sort of discovered what an MFA was in the last year or two of undergrad and I thought this is this seems really cool but also there's no way I would ever get in or could make this work and and then sort of life happened, you know, relationships, jobs, things like that. And I was writing, you know, for those, I think it was seven years, six or seven years, I was writing pretty regularly either on my own or with friends and things like that. But yeah, it, it, it kind of took a while before it took enough purchase in my mind that, that I was uh, willing to kind of make the plunge and, and do it. So what was that, uh, that straw that broke the camel's back? What made you decide to go for it? I think there's a two-speed answer to that. On the more simple logistical level, uh, a good friend of mine got into a program the year before and that sort of gave me more confidence that it was, that it was possible. Uh, I also applied in an extremely long quarantine lockdown in Melbourne. And so applications gave me something to do. I had nothing else to really do when I wasn't working. And so that was an excuse to kind of round about the part of my brain that was doubting about it. It was like, you might as well write, do these applications because you've got nothing better to do, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I would also say that uh, I would say just over time, the, the doubting voices in my head or the voices that were trying to rationalize that it was a bad decision for X and Y reason was slowly overcome by the voice of desire and want and, um, you know, if you want something and then five years later you you still want it, you, you start to become pretty sure that it's something that you should at least try to do. Well, you mentioned that a lot of life happened in those six or seven years between undergrad and the MFA. How do you think that time affected your future experience and or success as an MFA student? I think largely good. I, I feel uh, having had particularly a, a really demanding nine to five job for the few years before I started the MFA meant that things like time management, uh, being okay with like working independently for uh, long hours, not squandering time. These are sort of like really basic, boring, but important aspects of, of graduate school have been very manageable. You know, part of me thinks that if I had been more motivated and engaged with writing uh, communities a bit more back in Australia, you know, my development could have sped up a little bit and I would have been ready for the program earlier. So I definitely encourage people to, you know, do workshops wherever possible, be engaged with other writers, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I also don't know if I was ready. My writing was ready. Um, there's people in my program who are 22, 23 and handling it with ease. And I was a mess at that age and I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, you know, <laughs> case by case basis. Well, you ended up at the University of Washington in Seattle. Their two-year fully funded MFA program in creative writing offers tracks in poetry and prose. 
you're focusing on prose. And maybe we can start there because normally MFA programs would have separate fiction and nonfiction tracks. How is the prose track at UW different? Yeah, so it's it's quite a unique program. I, I, from memory, there's others, but uh, so fiction and nonfiction are all creative nonfiction are combined. Uh, I applied with a fully fiction packet to the program and others in the program I know applied with purely nonfiction. So you don't have to be cross genre uh, to get in or to, to flourish in the program at all. Uh, but we do we workshop together. So we have prose workshops where people are submitting fiction and nonfiction. I would say it's maybe 70, 30 fiction to nonfiction. I had some, it both interested me and was part of the reason I applied for this program at the same time as having some minor skepticism about it. I was excited about it because I wanted to be able to write fiction and nonfiction when I was in the program. I had some skepticism about it thinking about for example, would our craft talks be less nuanced because we've got people writing across different genres and none of that was true. I think it's 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 been more generative and useful uh, and I don't really see any drawbacks from it. Uh, I think we have interesting questions about not starting with a form assumption for any piece of writing, basically. You, you kind of think about a topic that you want to write into or an experience and you have as much potential to write fiction or nonfiction about it and have thesis advisors and faculty who are articulate and, and experienced with both. And, and I find that freeing and really useful as a writer. Do you think you've written more nonfiction in the program than you would have otherwise? Or have you seen working with those nonfiction writers, have you seen that affect your fiction in ways you didn't expect? I would say I've probably, for example, for workshop, I've probably handed in 80, 20 fiction to nonfiction, but I was really grateful that I've been able to workshop nonfiction pieces without, say, taking a nonfiction elective or something like that. Uh, there's people in my cohort who came in pretty much only writing nonfiction and have really shifted to fiction. So it does have these pretty generative and different impacts. A lot of People in my program are doing really interesting things with form when it comes to nonfiction, and that has, you know, specifically been really uh, useful and productive for my fiction writing. Seeing what people can do with with those sorts of stories. Well, the MFA program at the University of Washington is in a well-respected English department, which has an English PhD program as well. Perhaps because of this, there seems to be some focus on critical writing as well as creative writing in the MFA program. For example, part of the graduation requirements is a 20 to 30 page critical essay addressing the student's relationship to the readings they've done while in the program. This might intimidate some candidates. So I'm curious to hear about your experience with this and how you think it benefited you as a writer. It intimidated me a little bit as well, so I totally understand if, if the listeners, if they are. I found it really productive. Um, what I would say overall is is the program has pleasantly surprised me in the sense of it making me a much better thinker and um, about various topics rather than just a writer about them because of being embedded with, with some of the, the sorts of things you just mentioned. We have a big PhD program who the first year English PhD students, we take our teaching pedagogy course with them at the start of the program. So we develop friendships and relationships with PhD students pretty early on. 
And it's also really helpful in terms of making relationships with faculty. So, for example, Stephanie Clare is a professor here in queer theory. I took one of her elective classes and she's helping me with my thesis work as sort of an informal third, third reader coming at it from a very different lens than a, than a fiction writer. So these sorts of things are, are really useful. The critical thesis the, the information about it on the website, I find, is, is accurate and also misleading. I think it's, it's, you can basically write largely whatever you want. Um, some people take it in the space of creative nonfiction, autobiography, literary theory. Basically, it's a piece of researched, intimately engaged critical writing that doesn't necessarily directly have to do with your creative thesis. So you kind of think about it as a side project um, that is really generative thinking-wise. It's really great if you're thinking of applying to a PhD program after your MFA because certain people fashion them into their PhD applications, things like this. So I, I, I think it's a, a unique and a really good part of the, the Seattle program. According to the website, the program admits only 10 to 12 students each year, and they say the relatively small size of the program allows for close associations to develop among students and faculty. Have you felt that you've been able to develop close working relationships with the faculty at the University of Washington? Yeah, I I would say definitely. Uh, So yeah, uh, admits about 10 or 12 a year, and there's about five faculty in the poetry side and about five in the prose side. So those are pretty small numbers all around. Uh, faculty, it definitely varies on a case-by-case basis. Some are around a lot and are really social. Uh, we've had you know dinners and beers and things like that at professors' houses and, and those sorts of things. Others are either maybe really COVID conscious or for other life reasons aren't as around. And so it's definitely a person-to-person basis. But you have a first reader for your thesis and a second reader. So you have, that's two of the five faculty for your side that you're going to be dealing with on a really regular basis. Regardless, you end up taking a workshop with pretty much everybody in the faculty at some point in your degree. So the relationships are there to the extent that you want to engage with any particular faculty member. And what about the relationship amongst the students? Is there a strong sense of camaraderie in the program? Yeah, there is. I I was really um, pleasantly surprised about that. Uh, For the most part, we're all friends. We have parties together. Uh, The program, uh, as a program, we run a couple of reading series here in Seattle. So once every second week, there'll be a, a, a reading of some sort on and most people come to that and we'll have a drink afterwards or, or these sorts of things. Uh, we all work in the same offices. Uh, so there's, a, there's definitely a strong sense of camaraderie. Um, like any group of, uh, you know, any group of people, there's always, you know, complications and certain people aren't friends and all that sort of thing, but nothing that is beyond, you know, any group of people anywhere. Um, it's, it's, it's a really warm space, particularly I found it as somebody coming from another country and trying to create a community in in a new city and a new country. I found it really warm and welcoming. As I mentioned earlier, the program is fully funded. The funding package, according to the website, includes a tuition waiver, health insurance, and a monthly stipend for two academic years, which includes a combination of teaching and fellowship quarters. Does this mean that you teach some quarters and don't in others? How does that work? 
Yes. Yeah, so there is, so UW works on a quarter system. So we have six quarters over the, the, over the two years. You teach five of those six quarters. So in your first year, you teach undergrad composition for the first, for the three quarters. And then in your second year, you teach one quarter of composition. Uh, you have a fellowship quarter where you get paid the same as you do if you were teaching, and then you also teach a quarter of uh, creative writing, so fiction or poetry. What's your teaching experience been like in the program? It has been, the first quarter is hard, I will say <laughs> up front. Uh, they really throw you, throw you in the deep end. You're given a group of 23 undergrads and teaching uh, composition. You write your own uh, syllabus uh, or your readings, you can really teach it in whatever way you would like. I teach activist writing. Others teach narrative through music albums. Others teach personal narrative and memoir. You can really take it in whatever direction you would like. And so you're spending the first quarter teaching at the same time as writing your syllabus, coming up with readings, doing grading, getting used to all the other things. So the first quarter is really difficult and then it gets really rewarding and cruisy after that. I've found my my last two quarters were really manageable. I had a huge amount of time to both do everything else that I needed to do as well as to, you know, really be there for the students and and kind of respond as needed to all their different needs and and be really like sensitive in class to what was needed. Yeah, so you, you kind of front end all the hard work and then it and then it kind of becomes quite a bit easier after that and I'm finding it really rewarding. Well, just because a program is fully funded doesn't necessarily mean every student will feel financially secure while in a program. I know this can especially be the case for international students who often deal with additional expenses. And of course, Seattle is an expensive city. So what do you think listeners should consider from a financial perspective before attending the University of Washington or another MFA program for that matter? As you said, uh, to, I guess to start with, as you said, Seattle is an expensive city. Uh, our stipend or our funding package over the course of a year after fees ends up being about twenty six or twenty seven thousand, which is relatively high for a program. But Seattle is relatively expensive as a city, and so I think as a first step. Uh, as I imagine most applicants would be doing anyway, is you know thinking about both the stipend and the living costs of the place that you're in, and sort of comparing those, not just dollar figures as as well. And then thinking about, particularly from an international uh, applicant background, I expected moving to be quite expensive, but you never fully estimate you know the moving costs. Uh, thinking about, for example, I arrived in Seattle three or four weeks before the program started. Your first paycheck is maybe three or three weeks or so into the program, and so there's two months where you know you're not on salary and thinking about the you know being prepared for those sorts of costs. And then the other thing that I think is really important to think about is, particularly for international students, is what opportunities there are for working over the summer quarter or the summer uh, semester break. I find the stipend that we have is is livable when you're getting paid, you know, through the the three quarters that you're that you're working. Uh, but then over summer you're not getting paid, and so thinking about what work you're going to do there or, or sort of financial options there, 
people in the program are doing various things, whether it's teaching high school students in UW's summer program or going back to the jobs they had prior to the program, all of these sorts of things. And so the UW, for example, does have quite a lot of opportunities for ad hoc summer teaching jobs and things like that. Uh, but I wasn't aware of those when I applied. And so I think asking those sorts of questions up front and kind of planning financially ahead for those sorts of things is is really important as well, particularly if you're an international student because visa requirements, you can only take on certain jobs and there's paperwork involved and all of those sorts of boring logistical matters that end up potentially making your experience stressful when maybe it didn't need to be. Well, before we go, I've got one last question for you. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different, for better or for worse, from your expectations when applying? You know, maybe it's maybe it's like the coming from a different country thing, but part of me had envisioned something that was both maybe more exciting and more pretentious. I, you know, <laughs> this image of, you know, sitting around these like boozy parties, like arguing about, I don't know, the newest story in the New Yorker or something like that, or like jostling for connections or like talking about agents I don't know things like that um and the reality I mean maybe that's what some programs are like but I think the reality for my program is much more mundane and human and supportive and we're just a group of people who really like writing our weird little stories and we're trying to carve out a life where we can do that as much as we possibly can and I'm really grateful for that because that's that's what matters. Well, I'm um, excited you did it, that you came over into the MFA program. I'm glad to hear that you've had mostly a, a good experience. And I can't wait to read that crime novel. So thanks for stopping by and chatting with me. Thanks very much, Jared. It's been a pleasure.